0: Two great wings of the dharma are wisdom and compassion. And this great bird of the dharma needs both wings in order to fly. Because without wisdom, we might have compassion for the suffering in the world, but we won't have a deep understanding of the causes of that suffering. And so we won't have effective means to alleviate it. And if we have wisdom without compassion, we might see into the nature of things, see into the nature of suffering, but we won't have that feeling in the heart that's moved to take action. So we need both of these qualities of wisdom and compassion to actualize the awakened state. What is compassion? What is that quality? When we look closely in our experience, we see that compassion is that feeling in the heart that responds to suffering in a way that wants to alleviate it. It's that feeling that moves us and then motivates us to take action when we see suffering or feel suffering in ourselves or other people. What opens us to this feeling of compassion, what connects us with it, is an opening to and a deepening experience of the suffering that exists in ourselves and in the world. And this is something I think all of you are very familiar with. We don't have to look far to find suffering. every newspaper and news program is really a catalog of it. The suffering in the world of, you know, political or social or economic injustice and exploitation, of religious or racial intolerance. And it's quite amazing, sort of the manifestation of the ignorance in the mind. People killing one another In the name of God, it's so absurd. And yet the forces, these compelling forces of ignorance are so strong and so productive of suffering for so many people. even when we ourselves may live on an island of relative peace and security and well-being, even though we may be very sensitive and tuned to the suffering outside, when we look more closely at our own lives, we see that there's plenty of suffering right here that we can open to. There's the suffering of the body just the process of getting older and getting sick and dying. Sometimes I think it's a good thing that uh, we age slowly, most of us, so that we can kind of get used to the decay of the body. You know, it's a gradual process, and it allows us to kind of get familiar and comfortable with it. Because it's happening. And it's the nature. If we take birth... We're going to get old, and we're going to get sick, and we're going to die. And this is not a mistake. This is the nature. This is the Dharma. This is how things are. And often in that process, there's a tendon suffering. There's the even more pervasive, more difficult kind of suffering in the mind. The Buddha said that as difficult as pain in the body is, It's nothing compared to the kind of torment that can arise in the mind. And we all have varying degrees of experience with this. You know, of anger and fear and loneliness and jealousy and envy and despair and frustration and boredom and anxiety and the list is very long. And for the most part, probably for most of us, these are passing states, but sometimes we really get overwhelmed by forces of mental suffering. If we see suffering as an individual problem, either our own or somebody else's, generally the response is one of pity, you know, the self-pity. If we really suffer and we see it just as our own problem, kind of the poor me syndrome. Or if we see it as an individual problem of somebody else, we might have pity for that person. When we understand suffering is not an individual problem, it's really a universal experience. It's part of our being alive. It's part of humanity. It's part of the human condition. When we see it not as somebody's individual problem, but as part of the human condition, then it's not so much pity that comes forth, but compassion. Because we see that we're all in the same boat. In pity, there's separation. With compassion, the feeling of compassion, there's a feeling of connectedness, of oneness. We understand the suffering of others because we see it in ourselves, we feel it in ourselves. so now there's a little paradox that arises. If suffering is the cause for compassion to arise, and the suffering is so pervasive in the world and so obvious in our own lives, why then isn't there more compassion in the world? If suffering is the cause for compassion to arise and there's so much suffering, why is there so little compassion? And here's where we can really look at our own experience to understand this. As we examine our experience carefully, we see that in very many ways, we and others are not really open to the suffering that's there. In many ways, we close off to it or become defended against it or resist it or deny it. This is one of my favorite all time stories. <laughs> I have a friend his story of a friend who was talking about his grandfather and his father. And it was nineteen forty one. And they were driving in a car, it was December seventh. They're so driving in the car. And on the radio comes the announcement of Pearl Harbor. And the grandfather says to my friend's father, don't tell your mother. (laughs) That's a pretty big one to deny. (laughs) We shouldn't open to this one. (laughs) Don't tell your mother. (laughs) (laughs) we can really see this very same attitude in ourselves, maybe not in a circumstance of that magnitude. And I think you've seen, just in the time that you've been here, in the ways that we close off, or deny, or resist, or defend against the feeling of physical pain. And I think you've seen that it's really quite difficult To be totally relaxed, totally open, totally accepting, receptive with physical pain. Because our conditioning is so strong. Something unpleasant, resist. Keep it out. What are we doing? We're resisting, we're keeping out, trying to keep out unsuccessfully, the suffering. But it's precisely this keeping out, the not opening to it, which closes us to the possibility of feeling compassion. not only with physical pain. We can look in our own experience and see how do we relate to painful or difficult emotions in our mind states. It's really interesting to watch this carefully because for each one of us there are probably certain feelings or certain emotions that for some reason are not okay. That we're not really willing to be with fully in the same way that we're not often willing to be with physical pain fully. It might be feelings of fear. It's hard to open to fear. It might be feelings of loneliness. It might be feelings of unworthiness. It might be anger. It might be rage. It's, for each one of us, our conditioning is different. But to begin to see where the shadow side of our psyche is, what's that part of our mind and our feelings that we don't open to that we resist that we try to keep away and it's interesting to look at how much of our lives is created around an attempt it's often a futile attempt but an attempt not to feel certain things I mean in our culture there are some things that are very obvious how much of what is in our culture is an attempt not to feel bored. <laughs> this whole huge billion dollar industries created so that we never have to feel bored. How much of what we do in our lives is so we never feel lonely? Or any one of these. How defended, you know, how protected do we get of ourselves so we never feel fear or anxiety? It's this unwillingness to open to the suffering, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, that keeps us grasping for alternatives, keeps us grasping for diversions. For all of us, it's different things. It could be food, it could be sex, it could be entertainment. It often is work. It would be very interesting in times when you're feeling quite obsessive about your work situation, just to stop for a moment and look underneath is there something here there's some feeling that I'm not wanting to be with and I'm using work as a cover for it in these times of avoidance or resistance or trying to close off we're not feeling our situation ourselves other people from a place of compassion Because compassion comes when we're open to the suffering, when we actually let it in, rather than try to keep it out. And one of the amazing things about the meditation practice, and I hope you get a glimpse of this during this retreat, is that it is much simpler to actually feel these feelings than to construct this whole life defense against them. It's much simpler, just to feel bored for a little while. Let's be driven to a whole range of activities so we don't feel it. Or lonely, or sad, or unhappy, or anxious, or whatever. They are just feelings. They come when the conditions are there, we can feel them, we can open to them, and they go. And if we tune into the suffering that's involved with them, we can really hold them in a place of compassion. It's this attitude of openness, or acceptance, for the difficult, for the painful, which is part of our whole undertaking of compassionate self-acceptance. Our path of practice is really, in one way, about self-acceptance, and it's accepting all the parts of ourselves. There's a, a poem by a Japanese woman poet, her name is Izumi. She lived, I think, 10th or 11th century. She wrote, Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. That's really a powerful statement there. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely. No part left out. So in our work of knowing ourselves completely, and particularly our work with difficult emotions, painful emotions, situations of suffering in ourselves, we have to find a balance And there's a balance of not pushing things away, not denying them, not resisting on the one side. And on the other side, it's also not to wallow in what's happening, to be drowning in them, to be overwhelmed by them. Finding the middle ground. I'll just tell you two short stories of my experience in working with fear. There was a time in my practice when fear was coming up Very, very strongly. Actually, I'll tell you three stories. (laughs) This (laughs) the first one, really. I was doing this seshin with Suzaki Roshi, who's sort of like Upandita, (laughs) and he's really a very fierce old Zen master and demanding. And and these sashins with him, you see him four times a day. You're working on on a koan. It's very intense, and Zen is very formal, and you're all sitting and walking together. And you know the pressure really builds during the course of the week. So he gave me some koan, and I'd go in and I'd give my answer, and he'd say, "Oh, very stupid." (laughs) I'd go back. I'd go in again. Oh, you know, good answer, but not Zen. He'd go on and on like this, and I'm getting more and more uptight as the time goes on. And finally, after quite a few times, he gives me. He sees that I'm not getting any place. And he gives me an easier koan. He kind of moves me back a step. And he said, well, you know, manifest Buddha nature while chanting a sutra. How do you manifest Buddha nature while chanting a sutra? So that was a, a, my koan. So at least I understood you know, what I was supposed to do, go in and just chant something and manifest my Buddha nature that way. But of course, that tied right in to my whole singing trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, under all this pressure of the session and singing and getting really tight. Well, I was a wreck. And I'm sitting there practicing, you know, these two lines of chanting that I was going to do and getting really, really wound up tight. Finally, the bell for the this and the interview comes. You know. I, I wait until the last. <laughs> I postponed it. Finally, I go in. I do my bows and I repeat my koan. I start chanting the sutra. I got everything wrong. I mean, I got everything mixed up. It was awful. And I felt totally, just totally raw and vulnerable and open and worthless and that whole constellation of feelings. And he looked at me, and it was just one of those moments. He looked at me and he said, oh, very good. And it was such a moment, because I was so open and so exposed it's like my heart was, was raw and because it was so open he was able to go right in and touch it yeah. and so it was just a powerful and beautiful lesson in how through whatever circumstances whether it's the form of a sashin or just our own inner work when we can allow ourselves to feel that open that fearful that exposed That's when things can really touch us. Very good. It was really a great moment. So that's the first fear story. The second one came about a month or two later. I was doing a self-retreat and planning to go to another (laughs) seshin. So just in thinking about all these interviews with him, I started working myself up into this fear state. And it really took me over. And I'm noting fear, 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 fear. It didn't make a dent. I was really caught in it. Finally, after, after quite a few days of this, I was doing some walking meditation outside, and I was looking at it and, and working with it, and I said to myself, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And that's where the it's okay mantra came from. And it was magic, because in the moment of that genuine acceptance, the whole thing opened up. And I saw in retrospect that I had been noting fear, 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 but it was fear go away. It wasn't, this is okay, let me feel it. And so it was very instructive in seeing the ways in which we think we might be open, but are really closed and the need in terms of freeing ourselves to come to that place of genuine and full and complete acceptance of what's there it's okay if this is here for the rest of my life it's okay so this is the side of working with difficulty or pain of acceptance of openness the other side in the last of the, S- the fear stories is about not wallowing i was teaching a course in texas and with another colleague, Sharon Salzberg, and I had been working with all this fear in myself and you know, past history and childhood, and, and I'm going on and on about this and how it's going to take me 25 years of psychotherapy to kind of unwind it all. And I'm walking, it was during lunch break with Sharon, and sort of going on and on about this, and she turned to me and she said, It's just a mind state. <laughs> and it's like, I have said that myself to thousands of people (laughs) many, many times. Somehow, it was just the right moment to hear it. It's just a mind state. And it cut through all that wallowing, that identification, that getting lost in my whole fear story. So that's the other side. We need to be accepting, we need to be open, we need to be okay with it, and at the same time, we need to be incisive enough and clear enough not to be wallowing in this stuff. It's just a mind state, that's what it is. In all of this, what's important, I think, to understand is that the more we work on ourselves, the more we understand ourselves, it inevitably translates into how we are in the world. The more we understand our own struggles, Struggled with opening to suffering, the more we can have compassion for others who are struggling with the suffering. Some years ago, I was teaching in Hawaii and went hiking in Kalalao Valley on the, on the Kauai coast, in the Pali coast, and really exquisitely beautiful. We walked, we walked all the way into the Kalalao Valley. And I was with a friend from Hawaii who was um, born there and grew up and very familiar. And he <coughs> said to me, you know, we were in this valley, and he said, Oh, let's go climb that cliff. It was, <laughs> it was a big cliff. <laughs> and there, were no pa- there was no path up. You know, it was just kind of footholds and handholds. And, and I was really apprehensive about this. But sort of rose to the challenge. I was really quite afraid all the way up. But I made it. And even on, while I was on top, all I could think of was, how am I going to get down? <laughs> it really detracted from the view. <laughs> but anyway, I got down. And, uh, I was sort of glad I did it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a month later, I was with my mother in Colorado. And we drove up to the mountains. And we just parked the car someplace you know, up in the Rockies, and it was really beautiful. And there was just this little incline down to a meadow. You know, it was really, it was really nothing. It was just like maybe an incline you know, down toward the pond or something. But she was really apprehensive. And I at first started getting really impatient, you know, it's nothing, just, just do it. <laughs> and then I remembered, you know, how I was on the cliff in Kalalau, and I realized it doesn't matter you know, what the particular situation is. Everybody has their own edge. Mm-hmm. And what's difficult for one may be not difficult for another, but we really need to remember how we are at our edge, you know, and the difficulty and the suffering because that's what allows us to feel compassion for others when they're in a similar situation and not judge, oh, that's nothing, why don't you just do it? was a great Thai master, Ajahn Chah, a forest master who was one of Jack Cornfield's teachers and a um, teacher of many. <coughs> he was really a very great being. He had, I think it was a stroke, or something happened, and he was uh, very sick for a very long time and, and in a coma for a long time. Sometime after... Uh, He had his stroke, but before he was uh, really unconscious, somebody, a friend of ours, went to see him who had been his student, and this friend sort of was, uh, sort of in a light-hearted way, saying, well, I guess now's the time to put the teachings into practice, or something like that, you know, and that kind of, that kind of. Slightly bantering tone. And Ajahn Chah said something really very powerful. He said, You should never take the dying process lightly, it's harder than you think. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is from somebody who is you know, a really great master. And again, it's just, it was a powerful reminder. that compassion is about (coughs) understanding and letting the suffering of ourselves and others in, not dismissing it, not taking it lightly. And that's what allows for a compassionate response rather than a glib one. We can see how we close off or resist feeling physical pain. We can see how we close off or resist opening to emotional suffering. We also close off or resist to suffering in the world, to situations, when they become too unpleasant, too difficult. What's interesting to watch is that how from this moment of closing off in some way to suffering in the world, that the mind then tends to justify it of why we do it. And we can see it in our culture. Now, how does our culture relate to homelessness? It's a lot blaming the victim response. You know, and that gets justified because it's difficult to open to the suffering of that. You know, and it's in some way so senseless to really let that in so that it affects us in our lives is not easy. And as a culture, I think, we haven't done very well with it. There's that keeping it out and then justifying. I'm sure you see the same thing with environmental problems, you know, and how the society relates to those problems. Justifying not seeing them, not dealing with them. But even when we are attempting to relate to the suffering that's there and open to it, there is one way that's quite subtle in which we may be closed off. And this is I'd like to talk about this for a bit now because I think it in some way may affect each one of us. In the Buddhist psychology there's something called the near enemies of wholesome mind states. Wholesome mind states like love, like compassion, like equanimity, like wisdom. That each of these has a near enemy. That is, a state that looks like it but is not it. For example, the near enemy of love, of metta, is attachment. And many people in their lives really confuse attachment and love, thinking that they are necessarily inextricably intertwined and that in some way they're aspects of the same thing. Whereas when we look closely, we see that they are really quite different states, love and attachment. But because they're so close, we often don't make the distinction. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. And people often confuse that. They, they think, oh, if one is equanimous, that is balanced in the face of pleasure and pain, that it means being indifferent to it or not caring. And again, these are two completely different mind states, although close. The near enemy of compassion is sorrow. And this takes really a careful attention to see and understand. In sorrow, in the feeling of sorrow, there is some kind of aversion to the suffering. There is some kind of aversion to the situation. In the feeling of compassion, there is no aversion. And it's, Interesting to see within ourselves and in other people that when there is sorrow about suffering, as opposed to compassion, that often attendant upon that feeling come feelings of hopelessness, come feelings of despair. And all of these are constellated very much around a sense of I, a sense of self. In compassion, or metta, there's very little sense of I, or Self, because it's the energy not of holding anything, as we often feel with sorrow, but the energy of giving. It's a very different movement of the heart. With this, I really invite you to examine this for yourself. And so again, and we repeat this often, it's not a question simply of believing this, or, but take it as a point of investigation because this discrimination is very powerful. It has a powerful effect in how we relate to suffering in the world. I'm also not suggesting that Even when we see this, we're going to stop feeling sorrow because we're not until perhaps we're quite enlightened. Sorrow is going to come because aversion is there to unpleasantness, aversion is there to suffering. The Buddha said something interesting about our capacity to feel and open to the suffering in the world. He said, the reason enlightenment comes in stages is because we don't have the capacity to open to the totality of suffering. We can't do it all at once, it's too much, and so we get overwhelmed. Our spiritual practice in meditation and in the world, our development of compassion, is this gradual ability to open to the suffering that's there without aversion, without resistance, without sorrow. Compassion is that feeling which feels the suffering, which is open to it and is moved to alleviate it. Very often people think that or anger or self-righteous indignation is a necessary energy to deal with the problems in the world. And sometimes it's hard to imagine not getting angry at the injustice. I mean this is, this is I think, a common response. It's helpful to see that the anger or the self-righteousness or the indignation is not necessary in terms of responding to the suffering, and it only contracts us, it only closes us off, that there are other sources of energy from which we can respond. And the major source of energy which we find is that of compassion. So we need to find this in ourselves to it clearly and to discriminate, to see the difference between compassion and its near enemy. So we see that in our meditation practice, in our work in the world, the development of compassion comes from letting everything in, from letting the pain in, from letting all the emotions in, from letting people in, from letting the suffering in the world in, There's an 18th century Japanese poet, Isa, (coughs) who wrote, In the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. And that little poem, to me, expresses the nature of the open heart. In the cherry blossom's shade, there's no such thing as a stranger. Can we let it all in? Can we let in all the parts of ourselves? So the question arises, can we do this? And we can talk about compassion, we can talk about opening to the suffering in the world and not resisting and not denying. How can we do it? What's the wisdom that's necessary in order to be so inclusive? This challenge is not a theoretical one. No, it's not about what we practice just on retreat. We really need to develop this wisdom that transforms our consciousness, that transforms the way we're living in the world and relating to the world. There was an article in 1989 in the Harvard Medical Journal about a Tibetan doctor. He He was the physician to the Dalai Lama. His name was Tenzin Chodric. In 1959, he was imprisoned by the Chinese communists. He was imprisoned for 21 years. And he said that for 17 of those 21 years, his life was threatened daily and undergoing this horrendous both physical and mental torture. And He outlines some of what he went through in that regard in the article. But mostly it's about the points of understanding, the points of wisdom which he had, which allowed him to emerge from that situation of horror, not only alive, but really with the triumph of a compassionate heart, not embittered, not angry. And so I'd like to just mention a few of the points of understanding which sustained him during this time, because it's very powerful. Here's a situation that's not um, a philosophic discussion. Here he was in this horrendous, horrendous situation. How can we actualize our understanding? He said the first thing that he understood and worked with Putting his situation into a larger context. And what's quite a common teaching in Tibetan Buddhism, and the Dalai Lama speaks of it often, is how one's enemy teaches one's patience. The question that kept going through his mind, as he said, was even in this most terrible situation what human greatness can be accomplished? That was the question he held in his mind. So in times of even much less difficulty, can we remember that question? When we're faced with some difficulty, what human greatness can be accomplished in this situation? What quality of mind, of patience, of openness, of compassion, even in the face of tremendous suffering, tremendous difficulty. Someone disturbs us, or you're in a difficult situation at work, you know, where you're really confronting difficult people, difficult situation. Do we get caught up in an angry response? Or can we remember what human greatness can be accomplished here? Can I put this in a bigger context? The second point of understanding that he worked with was he understood that his enemy was human like himself and that his enemy, these people who were tormenting him, also had as He put it in his framework, the seeds of Buddhahood, the seeds of awakening. And he saw, and this is what's so remarkable, that his guards and the people who were torturing him were also people in adverse circumstances, because they were creating, through their action, the seed of their own tremendously great future suffering. And this, of course, is the understanding of the law of karma, that all of our actions have consequences. And he was able to see and apply this understanding to people who were harming him and threatening him and torturing him. He was able to have compassion for their own ignorance and for their own suffering. And it's amazing because sometimes people misunderstand the law of karma as a vehicle of retribution. You know, and it would not be an uncommon thing, perhaps, to think in that situation, oh, well, they'll get theirs. But what made him so amazing and why he emerged really with a triumphant heart, because he didn't see it as a vehicle of retribution. He understood this law of karma as a vehicle of compassion. Quite amazing in, in the intensity, the extreme of those circumstances of understanding the commonality of humanity, that we're all in the same boat and that out of ignorance we do so many (coughs) things that cause suffering for others and will (coughs) bring back suffering for ourselves. This was the second thing he saw, that the enemy was human like himself in the same predicament. The third thing, and he attributed this particular one, he attributed his survival in the prison To this particular point, talked about remembering to be humble, to forget about pride, about self-righteousness, about self-importance. Now it's important here to just examine a little more closely what humble means, because there's, for me anyway, and I think it may not be uncommon, an association with humility as an ego stance. Oh, I'm so humble. (laughs) You know, and people sort of acting out that image. That's not what humility is about. It was expressed very well by one writer who said, true humility is the absence of anyone to be proud. It's not a stance. (laughs) It's It's not an image really seeing that there's the absence of anyone to be proud. And it was by letting go of that self-importance or pride that he was able to survive. This teaching was also expressed very incisively by a Japanese Zen master. His name was Bankai. Very uh, unusual. He wasn't part of any lineage. He just went off and got enlightened by himself quite enlightened, and then started teaching his own particular brand uh, of awakening. One of his lines, which sort of expresses this point as well as many others, he said, don't side with yourself. (laughs) And I thought that would be particularly useful in this group. (laughs) Because when we're involved in some kind of political or social or adversarial action, for what hopefully is a good cause can we do it without siding with ourselves without a sense of pride without a sense of self-importance with that real energy of humility so that served him very well too and the fourth point that he made was the understanding that hatred and vengeance toward the enemy toward somebody who is really tormenting us is not a skillful response because violence, whether in action or in our mind, always breeds more violence. And this has been expressed in so many spiritual traditions. I don't really remember, uh, this, you know you remember some number of years ago when the hostages were being held in Lebanon. One of them was, I can't remember whether it was from Britain or Ireland, name was Brian Keenan. When he came out, of course, he was interviewed. He was he was held hostage for four or five years. You know, and it was, again, another very horrendous situation. When he came out and he was interviewed, very remarkable. He said, I have no desire for vengeance. Because vengeance is self-maiming. And I don't intend maiming myself. Hmm an amazing wisdom there given the circumstances. So these are the understandings that we can reflect on in our own lives in situations of difficulty. We don't hopefully need to wait for something as horrendous as happened to Tenzin Chodric. Putting the situation in a larger context. What can be learned from it? What kind of greatness of mind, of heart, can be accomplished in this difficult situation. Not forgetting the commonality of all beings, that it's really no different, not separate. Remembering not to side with ourselves, that sense of humility, and the understanding that hatred never ceases by hatred. We can practice this in small ways. And we should begin in small ways. Now, early on in the retreat, I mentioned the phenomenon of Vipassana Romance. Well, there's another phenomenon, which is the Vipassana Vendetta. (laughs) Where there's somebody here who bugs you. (laughs) For some reason, you know, you don't like the way they walk or dress or eat or something. Okay, next time the Vipassana Vendetta arises in the mind... See if you can actually work with that mind state instead of just getting caught and identified with one's reaction and getting lost in that little mind world. Right there, it's a very small little circumstance, something can be learned. We can learn about another possibility. And the other possibility is developing the wisdom which allows us to have compassion rather than react with self-righteousness, with anger, with aversion. precisely our ability to open to suffering with wisdom that allows us to respond from a place of compassion and to take compassionate action, not only to rest with the feeling, but to have the feeling actually motivate us to do things in the world, to alleviate the suffering that's there. I think it's tremendously important not to make a hierarchy of compassionate action. You know, that this is the kind of suffering that needs to be addressed, and that's more important than this kind of suffering. The domain of compassionate action is vast, and how we respond will very much depend, as I said this afternoon, on our own particular interests and abilities and skills. We shouldn't create a model that there is one way to do it. There are many, many skillful means. We also need to understand, I think, that compassion is a practice, just like metta, just like mindfulness, in that there will be times when the suffering is too much, when it really is overwhelming, when we can't handle it. And we have to know, we have to be compassionate enough to ourselves to know This is a time to back off. This is a time to retreat. This is a time to actually close down a little bit in order to gain the strength to be able to open. And I'm sure you're familiar with many people who have gotten burned, burned out because they didn't know when to retreat, when to back off. Compassion is a practice. Sometimes it's there and we're strong enough to deal with the suffering, sometimes it's not. We need to be aware enough and mindful enough to see this. There's one particular practice, I want to end with this, which has been tremendously inspiring and transformative for me in these last few years. feels to me like it's a priceless jewel. And it has to do with the understanding which I mentioned the first night of how everything rests on the tip of motivation. That that really is, motivation is the essential point of our actions in the world. What is the motivation behind them? And the practice I'm talking about is called the practice of Bodhicitta. This is a Sanskrit word. It literally means Bodhicitta. Bodhi, bodhi means wisdom or enlightened. Jitta means heart or mind. So literally it means awakened heart. In practice, what Bodhicitta is about is the cultivation and the strengthening, the development of that motivation behind our actions which seeks the benefit and welfare of all beings. That we practice this, first as an aspiration, we may not even really quite feel it, but we can have an aspiration to feel it, that yes, let my life, let my actions, let what I do in my practice and in the world be for the benefit, be for the welfare, be for the happiness Of all beings. This is a tremendously enlarging practice in our lives. Instead of practicing or working with a narrower motivation, with a narrower view, as I was mentioning this afternoon, why not aspire to the highest? And bodhicitta reflects this, this motivation this genuine and true wish to benefit all beings by our actions, by our lives. And the great benefit of being awake and mindful in the midst of one's work rather than being lost in thought about it is that it allows us to reconnect with this motivation of bodhichitta, rather than be lost in our habitual reactions and habits of mind. In the midst of challenging and difficult and complex circumstances, if we're present, if we're really wakeful and mindful, even intermittently, we can connect with that feeling, may this action, may what I'm doing, be for the benefit of all. There's one way to one very simple way to begin really feeling this out because this is a vast this is a vast practice but we can begin just to explore a little bit what it might mean for us just in our meditation practice itself and this you might try if you're interested at the beginning of the sitting you might bring this bodhicitta to mind with a kind of statement or feeling or expression may this practice may my practice be for the benefit of all so it's like we dedicate our energy we, we dedicate our very effort to be awake to be mindful not just for ourselves we're saying yes let me let me become awake for the welfare of all beings and so we just express that in some way to ourselves And at the end of the sitting, there's a a very traditional Buddhist um, move. (laughs) It's called the dedication of merit, which is just the other side of it. We, We take the merit or the value of what we've done and we dedicate it. We say, may the fruit of this practice be dedicated to the welfare of all beings. Sometimes we do it and it's really mechanical. You know, it's just a pro forma exercise but if you work with it and I, I found this very much slowly that motivation of bodhicitta the aspiration becomes a powerful expression of compassion in the world it's like a, an expression of our connectedness with all beings May this practice, may our actions, may our lives be for the benefit of all. The Dalai Lama who, I don't know whether you've read his books or seen him interviewed sometimes, but he must be one of the world's cutest beings. (laughs) He is so completely delightful and warm-hearted. And I, he has, he's, many books of his <laughs> writings and teachings. And one of his last books is, I think it's called The Flesh of Lightning*. Summer Night, or Dark of Things. It was a wonderful book, and in it, he just has this one little paragraph, which I'll paraphrase, I don't remember exactly, but he says, I don't really know why people like me. <laughs> you know, I don't have that many good qualities. <laughs> but maybe it's because of one thing my genuine wish to practice bodhicitta to practice the good heart. And it's very touching coming from the Dalai Lama. Yeah. And it very much it very much reflects his practice his understanding his way of being in the world, which is the manifestation of compassion. It's quite extraordinary. Maybe I'll just end with, with one little teaching of his. We are visitors on this planet. We are here for 90 or 100 years at the very most. During that time, we must try to do something good, something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and help others share that peace. If you contribute to other people's happiness, you will find the true goal, the true meaning of life. It's so simple and so direct and so profound. During that period, we must try to do something good, something useful with our lives. Try to be at peace with yourself and share that peace with others. If we contribute to other people's happiness, we will find the true goal, the true meaning of life. Let's sit for a few minutes. talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Vallecidos 1995 on July 9, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.